0: So we are beginning this morning a summer sermon series we're calling Travels with Jesus. Maybe you've seen the, the sweet logo that, uh, or graphic that Jordan made. But um, a lot of us are traveling for the summer. I'll be traveling in 20-ish minutes. And we thought it would be a nice change of pace to travel with Jesus through the designated lectionary gospel texts and just see where we end up we're gonna meander, we're going to saunter with Jesus. These sometimes make for some of the best kinds of adventures. Luckily, I get to begin this series this morning and I was fortunate actually to discover that the gospel story this morning is my favorite gospel story. It's found in Luke 8, 26 through 39. And just prior to this story is the story of Jesus and his disciples on the lake. And then a storm comes up. It's threatening to dump them into the lake, and Jesus calms the storm with his words. I'm sure you've heard the story. And immediately following that story, we get this one. Let me read it for you. It says, Then they arrived in the country of the Gerasenes, or the area of Gerasa, which is opposite Galilee. As he stepped out on land, a man of the city who had demons met him. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he did not live in a house but in the tombs. When when he saw Jesus, he fell down before him and shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for many times it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demons into the wilds. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? He said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They begged him not to order them to go back into the abyss. Now there on the hillside, a large herd of pigs was feeding, and the demons begged Jesus to let them enter these. So he gave permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the swine herds saw what had happened, they ran off, and they told it in the city and the country, Uh, the swine, the shepherds of the pigs. Then the people came out to see what had happened, and when they came to Jesus, they found the man whom the demons had gone into, but he was sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and the people were afraid. Those who had seen the whole ordeal told them how the one who had been possessed by the demons had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat, and he returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged Jesus that he might go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him. We hear the voice of God in these words, thanks be to God. Okay, so um what? <laughs> yes, that's my intro to this sermon. Are you familiar with this story at all? What in the world do we do with a story like this? The way I see it, we have a few options. A, we could say this story is so puzzling and odd that we dismiss it as pre modern, pre scientific pre-critical spiritual folklore. That's out there as an option. We could do that. Or B, we could say it's a story about Jesus' ability to vanquish vanquish metaphysical spirits to the abyss where they belong with simply the raise of an eyebrow. That's another reasonable way to engage this story, and you've probably heard sermons like that. Or we have option C, I guess option C would be Joe's take earlier, which I love. So we have option D, which is an exercise in imagination. Let's do that this morning. Let's have a little fun with the story, get it out of then and bring it into now. Imagine with me that this man is not the Garrison demoniac, a characterization which, like most characterizations, flattens him into more object than subject, but instead, he's just a man or a person like you and me and let's imagine that we don't find him as our text says in Gerasa on the other side of the sea of Galilee which has a bit of and on the other side of the tracks sound to it but instead that we find him in Gerasa USA today he isn't just the demoniac from Gerasa of Syria 2000 years ago he is you and me and our neighbors in Garissa, USA. So that's where we find our man, as if he were a character in a dystopian movie. He's naked and alone and living in a cemetery with obvious mental health challenges. How did he get to this place where he is to use theological language experiencing a crisis of soul? As you've already seen in your worship guide this morning, I've included Dr. Rogers Vaughan's definition of soul as that fabric that embeds every one of us within all that is. It is our existence with the woven living web of humanity and all creation. He goes on, That said, souls do not simply become ill or fail to thrive from within. Instead, they become frayed when the broader fabric in which they exist becomes torn strained and destroyed is this how our man became naked alone and living in a cemetery well I can imagine in Gersa, USA it is possible that he's there because he's become what the Polish uh, sociologist Zygmunt Bauman calls human waste it's conceivable that he's neither a producer nor a consumer in a society that measures and monetizes absolutely everything and thus there's no place for him so he had to be expelled production consumption or expulsion there is no place in the system for those who would dare to simply exist or to use the language of the system loiter this rings particularly true in Garrison, USA where most people receive their health care coverage through their work which sends the message that it's only the producers that have earned the right to live. Maybe that's how he got there. Another possibility that could have brought our dear man to find himself in this situation could simply be that from the outset of his life, he never really stood much of a chance to exist in community. Maybe it's rooted in his early years those years that are so essential to our physical, psychological, and soul health. Maybe because of a disintegrated community soul or because of government immigration policies like parent-child separation, he was not sufficiently loved and cared for as a child, which led to his life and any relationship really being a long, toilsome, uphill slog. In the early and mid-1950s last century, American psychologist Harry Harlow completed numerous studies on the effects of monkeys, our fellow mammals, who were reared in isolation or with artificial surrogate mothers made out of wire and cloth. Maybe you've heard of Harlow's monkeys, those studies. These were monstrous experiments with monstrous results. Follow-up research throughout the years and with other animals confirmed a lot of Harlow's findings The results were obvious. Compassionate caregiving during rearing decreases stress hormones and increases resistance to allergens, inflammation, and autoimmune illnesses. And the lack of it leads to those things. It might just be that this man never really had much of a chance for his soul to be nourished and formed, to be woven in and stitched into a broader fabric of relationship with others, with God, and with all of the life around him and in him. Unfortunately, it was easy for this to happen to him because it turns out that a society doesn't even have to be explicitly evil or sadistic for this man to find himself in a crisis of soul. It just has to simply impede or destroy or disincentivize compassionate, life-giving community. Maybe you've heard the recent news story about the man who was leaving food and supplies in the desert for immigrants coming across uh, coming across illegally, and he was arrested and charged with a few different crimes, abandonment of property, leaving water in the desert for migrants. This went to trial, and I believe uh, this past week it was found to have ended in a mistrial, but it was making a big deal right so all a society has to do is disincentivize compassionate life-giving community which we see happening around us a third possibility that could have brought our man to where he is today could simply be unresolved grief for someone buried there and an inability to move forward maybe someone he loved Someone who helped hold his world together died and is buried there in the cemetery, and there were no communal rituals because there was no community to help him mourn. So he found himself wandering aimlessly deeper and deeper into the starless no-man's-land-of-grief wilderness, unable to navigate his way out. He has no community among the living, so he resides with the dead. I can imagine He wasn't born in Garrison, USA, but instead he found himself there after many moves throughout the years, seeking degrees at various educational institutions and then job hopping to progress in his career field. And tragically, this pursuit left him without living, breathing community. I met someone like him one night while on call at the hospital a couple of years ago. Honestly, it's one of the saddest nights I've ever had in chaplaincy. An elderly woman hurriedly followed the ambulance that brought her husband to the emergency department with chest pains. After 45 minutes of CPR and every other possible intervention, the doctor finally called it. Her husband was gone. I sat with her for the next hour, and at one point, I asked, Who can we call? No one, she said. Um, a neighbor, a son or daughter, a sibling, a friend, somebody from church or a faith, anybody? No one, she said again. We followed his career all over the place. It was just us. He was all I had, she said. Soon after, I carried the white plastic bag with his belongings in it. As I walked her to her car, myself, heartbroken, imagining the loneliness that she would be feeling that night and in the weeks and months and even years to come. I recently read that researchers believe that loneliness and social isolation is more dangerous to our health than obesity and can be as damaging, they said, listen to this, as damaging as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Loneliness, more damaging than smoking. Both she and the man in our story were experiencing what has been called third-order suffering. First-order suffering is suffering that we experience because we are limited, finite creatures. We are all susceptible to sickness. We will all die. Tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, tsunamis ruin or end our lives. This is first-order suffering. We all experience it. Then there's second-order suffering. This is the suffering we experience because of injustices and harm that we cause one another. A person drives recklessly or distracted and causes a death. A builder or remodeler covers up structural flaws and sells a dangerous house to someone, leading to their physical, psychological, or financial ruin. Second order suffering. Suffering because of injustices that we do to one another. But then there are third order sufferings. It's suffering that we experience because our safety nets of community and support have been dismantled or destroyed. It's suffering we experience because the fabric of our communities, the soul of our societies, has been torn apart. That's what she was experiencing that night. That's what the man in our story is experiencing as well. There is nothing there to catch him. The city doesn't know what to do with him be gone. I could go on giving reasons why someone would find themselves naked, alone, and living in a cemetery, some that are unique to Garrisa of the Bible story, and some that are unique to Gerasa, USA, and some that are timeless. We could talk about a system that fosters pseudo-community instead of real community. We could talk about a system that encourages this man to sacrifice himself for status and approval. A system that makes opioid addiction easy, but opioid addiction recovery almost impossible. We could talk about a system that anesthetizes its people with unending streams of entertainment and sugar. We could talk about a system whose cost for health care, housing, and education leads to the average American to die $62,000 in debt, not even able to pay for their own coffin. These many causes of suffering are, to use the word that our text uses this morning, of legionous proportions. They are legion. The name legion in our text refers to a legion or a brigade of 6,000 Roman soldiers, soldiers that in that time, in that very space, were occupying, controlling, exploiting, and when their whims so desired, literally killing the inhabitants. One of the symbols of the brigades was a pig. It could be that when the man says the forces controlling him are legion, he could very well mean that they are like a legion of Rome soldiers, the occupying brutal force among them. Seemingly omnipresent, everywhere. Seemingly omnipotent, all-powerful. Seemingly omniscient, all-knowing they are legion meaning everywhere he turns the system claims for itself these attributes that belong only to god but rather than nourishing him into life the system leaves him naked alone and living among the tombs living among the dead the system leaves him hopeless his hopelessness in fact, is so great, maybe you caught this, that when somebody genuinely good comes into his presence, he begs him to leave. He asks Jesus, what could you possibly have to do with me? Please, leave. You, a person like me, just go. And in response, Jesus doesn't flinch. Jesus asks his name. What is your name? It's just beautiful to me. But rather than saying the name given to him by community, I am mother, I am son, I am Sarah, I am Andrew. Rather than giving his name given to him by community, he gives the name of the system. I am Legion. Can you see that his diagnosis has become his name? Again, Jesus doesn't flinch. I'm not sure what to call this other than divine. Jesus looks in the man's eyes, and because he's a person, and he sees more than the name the system had given him, more than his diagnosis, more than his category of Gentile, more than his class as tomb dweller, more than his proximity to a herd of pigs, Jesus looks at him as a human. It's as if these conditions that make the man ritually unclean do not even matter to Jesus. Are you hearing me? Jesus saw a child of God ensnared in a system of dehumanization. So let me be clear, unambiguous, and unequivocal right now. Jesus addresses the man as a child of God, destroying all this man's categories of who is in And who is out who is clean and who is defiled this is one of our core convictions here at peace jesus destroys the dehumanizing labels of gay or straight immigrant or citizen employed or unemployed christian or muslim or buddhist or atheist replacing them simply with the title child of god and in result jesus frees this man and all of us, from legion. The man is so moved. He is so moved, he begs Jesus now not to go away, but instead, take me with you. He begs Jesus, this otherwise stranger, take me along. But again, doing only what I can call divine, Jesus sends him back to his own community. That's crazy, right? Here was Jesus' chance to add another follower to his group, another paid subscriber to his channel, another voice to his chorus, but instead, Jesus sends the man back to his community. This is not how things are done in Gerasa, USA. It's as if Jesus is saying that salvation is more than one individual getting free from Legion. Salvation involves community. Salvation involves repairing the torn fabric of interwoven lives. Salvation involves creativity and courage to integrate those that it would rather cast out. Salvation involves going back to a community, a community that thinks a herd of pigs is worth more than one healthy, whole, restored person. Jesus sends him back to that, to say to them, Look, this is what it means to be really alive not life defined by legion life defined by the system but life defined by jesus so jesus sends him back into community and notice in closing here he sends him with explicit instructions jesus tells the man to go back and tell everybody what god did for him but our text says that He went back and he didn't do that. Instead, he went back and he told everybody what Jesus did for him. Did you catch this? I wondered about that this week. Why would he do that? Why would they write that and record that in the text? I suspect, my guess, his old notions of God had become too intertwined with legion, too intertwined with the system. So he needed a new definition and the best name and description he could give for God now was Jesus. He simply couldn't speak about God apart from the one who showed him that God doesn't flinch when you're naked, alone, and living in a cemetery. He couldn't speak about God apart from the one who showed him that God is love. And this was the beginning of his salvation story and the salvation story for his community. I don't know what happened next. The text doesn't tell us. I wonder if it does that intentionally. I wonder if it's left open-ended as if to say, that's up to you and to me and to all who would dare to join Jesus in repairing the torn soul fabric of our communities. May God's Spirit lead us in creativity, in compassion, in courage, as we continue that sacred work, Amen. Amen. Anybody say yeah to that? Everybody, <laughs> <laughs> just stand as we sing. Uh, oh, so oh, thank you. Surround the mercy of
1: Christ. How are we doing?